Hello, and welcome to the To The Stars podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. The To The Stars podcast has been created to recognize and honor those who have dedicated themselves to the objective of getting humanity to the stars. Today, we have a very, very special guest. I'm really excited to be talking with Mr. Larry Niven. Hello, Larry. Hello, John. So um, the first thing I'm very interested in, obviously, is um, your universe of known space. We'll talk about various things, but known space is what I know a lot of people are just absolutely um, enamored with. So how did you come up with that and some of the history of that? Uh, story by story. Okay. Uh, I didn't have a consistent universe until I found it convenient to make one. Okay. Out of the stories I'd been writing. And of course, some of the stories didn't fit, so they got left out into other universes. So then when you came out, there's like the ring world itself is like 160 million miles in diameter? Let's see. hundred. Uh, it's two, In diameter, it's two times 93 million miles. Actually, actually, I called it 95 million miles. So 190 million miles. 190 million miles. And so what was, this, was there any significance to that? Uh, o- only that I, I wanted a solar system that resembled Earth's. Okay. And then, um, now your history in, in science, did that play anything into this, on your, of the science in the actual known space? Truly, I think the, the habits I learned were more important than the facts I learned. But s- some facts pop up. Well, so the habits, you said, so what are some of that? So if, if that's the senior datum on that, so what are some of the habits? Uh, I learned the solar system because it was interesting. Oh, okay. And I followed the scientists rather than leading them, uh-huh. which is why in known space, Mercury turns one face always to the sun. Oh, really? Yeah. I actually didn't know that. Well, it's, it's only in one story, <laughs> and I've uh, not made a big point of it. So any other um, science points that, are, um, that to you were significant in, in the known space? Uh, Ringworld is more an engineering exercise. Uh, the, the, the science is all uh, basic grade school or high school uh, physics. Got it. Except where I made materials that are unreasonably strong <laughs> and uh, allowed faster than light travel and did a few things to make it, make it a better story. I get it. So then the engineering aspect of it. So how did that evolve then? Uh, I've heard about, rather than read, uh, Dyson spheres. Uh-huh. And I got the, uh, the science fiction writer's Dyson Sphere, which is less like uh, a cloud of uh, objects and habitats, uh, enough to block out all the sunlight from, it, from a given star, which was Dyson's idea. Hmm. Uh, his idea is that we could find these things with a telescope. But uh, what I got was... Uh, Dyson Sphere is a ping-pong ball, 93 million miles in radius. You terraform the inside. Frederick Pohl and Jack Williamson terraformed the inside and outer surface. Both. Oh, wow. So you, you look at the, uh, at the Dyson Sphere, and you think if, if artificial gravity is impossible, 
uh, this won't work. Uh, the only way to, to make it work is to spin the thing for artificial gravity, mm -hmm. terraform just the equator. Well, I, well, the ring world is, is just the equator and, and, uh, and, and nothing else. And everything around it is just uh, outside of that. It's just a ring. It's just, just a ring-shaped equator for a Dyson sphere, and you leave out the Dyson sphere. Uh, that starts the engineering aspects, uh -huh. and uh, and you look, you keep looking at it, and some things emerge, like uh, the possibility of a meteor hitting the outside, plunging up through it, push, pushing the edges high enough that you don't leak all the atmosphere out. But still making a really big mountain. Yeah. On the inside. Uh, yes. So um, now the various, you have four apparently disparate races all working together. Um, how'd that evolve? It's not, oh, you, you mean the crew of the, uh, of the lying bastard. Yeah, it, uh, that that was simple science fiction uh, <laughs> aspects. Sorry, habits. I'd been reading science fiction for decades, and so uh, just... and, and this is the way it, it came out. I, I, <laughs> I was the guy who wanted to write like Poole Anderson and Jack Vance. I get it. And uh, and, and uh, the rest. Yeah. So now with. Um... I mean, part of this thing with, with the To The Stars podcast is how science fiction has worked with science and helped to evolve science. How do you see that relationship? How have you experienced that yourself? I have influenced some scientists. Yeah. Uh, the, the ring world got some feedback in the form of letters from uh, various directions. Uh, I wrote about this in the intro to the Ringworld Engineers, and a lot of the Ringworld Engineers was shaped by the, those letters. Wow. Uh, one from a professor at one of the English universities uh, saying that, that uh, the strength of the Ringworld floor had to be a, about the same as, uh, as the, the force that holds an atomic nucleus together. Oh, that's interesting. So I ran that in. Uh, Scrith, the Ringworld, Ringworld floor material, wasn't there until the second book. Oh, wow. So, so it just it kept on evolving, and, and then other people would, would talk with you, and you'd learn more things. And it, you're... Yeah, ab absolutely. There was a, Florida cla a class in Florida that was, that was given the Ringworld for a, for a semester. And their basic con conclusion was that all the all the the, the uh, dust would wind up in the oceans uh, with no circulation? So I put in some circulating pipes, <laughs> handled that, uh -huh. and ran them over the rim rim wall, <laughs> so we could get some mount mountains. Absolutely. Any other things that that evolved in Ringworld as a result of uh, fan contributions? The fourth book came out of a uh, a. Uh, email conversation between uh, uh, among the people who subscribed to that. Uh, they, were, they were arguing about whether uh, Louis, whether 
Tila Brown could have had a child by Seeker. Seeker is a different hominid. Right. Uh, they're different species. Of course, she could not. Right. But she could have got pregnant by, by Louis Wu. For sure. Uh, Which was what was seemed given like certain what would be accidents. She'd have had, she'd have had to uh, get a, a mistake uh, in, the, in the fertility board uh, required treatments. Right. Now, he'd uh, be the only one that she could be pregnant from. She could be pregnant from Louis Wu. Yeah. Uh, and and he, he would not know it. Yeah. Other than the fact that if she was pregnant, it, he would be the most likely candidate because the other two couldn't. He would be lucky, too. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm blowing the, the, the major secrets <laughs> of, of the... Of, uh, Volume 4? Of Ringworld's children. Okay. But uh, that emerged from fans. Right. They, they had the wrong answer, and th that got me a story. Well, if they'd good. had the right answer, I wouldn't have got a story out of it. Well, and that was fortuitous. Now, you've, you've, one thing that was very interesting in, um, that I got from the first book was how probability could be genetically engineered. It seemed to be that was yes. the concept. I understand. That's a joke. Okay, good. Uh, the, my theory about Tila Brown is that uh, that that she happened to to have a lot of luck yeah. early in life. Uh, there is, she was she, she's a statistical fluke. Uh, the fertility board uh, favored her her ancestors mm -hmm. a few times. Yeah, and uh, you're going to get that if your population is in the is is above thirty billion. So yeah, it's just you could even get that in in a seven billion population. That's just something, that's something just I never quote, wrote. Probability-wise, that she's just a lucky person. Yeah, that's just. And there's no reason to think she'll continue to be lucky. That's a matter of chance. Right. Of which probability is the whole yeah. thing is, is that. The point is that the rest of the point <laughs> is that if Tila Brown isn't isn't lucky anymore, you can still interpret the rest of her life. Uh, as the best of all possible worlds, as was demonstrated in a novel called Candide. Wow! So was that part of? That was part. That was my assumption from the beginning. Okay. Well, that's because that was really interesting. I remember when I first read. I didn't know it. At first, I, when I just read the book, I read it. Okay, I'm just going to be a fanboy and just read this and just, you know, just to get it. And then afterwards reading up a little more about what other people have said and some of the synopses is like, you know, that's where some of these questions have come from because now I'm doing it not so much as this is a, well, that's a fun story and this is cool, but what about this, what about that? Yeah. The, the, the thing was, the ring world was settled by, uh, by, by uh, human ancestors and allowed to spread across the face of the ring world. Uh, you, you get hominids in all of the positions that you would normally find uh, wolves, tigers, mosquitoes, mm -hmm. uh, anything, anything the original builders didn't want there. Anything you'd wipe out if you had the power and nobody stopped you. Right. So um, now the whole mentality of the makers of Ringworld so anything about, anything about that, of how the, the creators of Ringworld? 
the, the first novel is Protector. Right. And Protector is one of several really good ideas I had once upon a time. <laughs> uh, the idea is that all of the symptoms of old age in humans uh, are an aborted version of something to make us stronger, smarter, uh, more capable of taking care of our children. Uh-huh. Including uh, uh, losing, losing our fertility. Uh, it isn't more children you're trying to protect, it's the ch children you've already had. Right. And you, you detect them by smell. So that was the... That, that's the, that's the uh, protector, the pack protector. Right. Human protectors are, uh, well, humans evolved as the breeders after the, after the protectors were no longer being born. Okay. Now, that allows for a lot of variety across the ring world. For sure. So then before humans, there were the protectors. Yeah. Okay. So um, how did you become a science fiction writer in the first place? I mean, you, you, were, very, you were solidly in a, in a vector towards science, right? At I was always a daydreamer. And yes, I, I liked science. I liked interesting things. Uh huh. When did when did your interest in science go from science science career to science science fiction? Yeah, yeah I just wasn't a, a good scientist can concentrate and keep on concentrating for years if necessary and uh -huh. decades if he has to. Uh, I didn't have that focus. I was a daydreamer. So you're good for a, yeah. a short stint. You're, you're good for a novel. I'm good for a novel. <laughs> and that's not, not that's easy. Awesome. That's nothing yeah, to sneeze at. A oh. novel takes two years if you're doing everything right. Yeah. And four, four or five if you get interrupted somehow. Yeah. So how many novels have you written in your career? I think uh, novels, maybe 60. And then short stories? Maybe 70. Adults? Yeah. Lots of short stories. And packaged in various ways, so it's hard to count how many actual books I've written. Right. But probably 70 or 80. Yeah. Understand, I'm taking two years to write a novel, but I'm writing more than one novel at a time. Sure. Uh, and, and some of them are collaborations. And so, some of them are short stories that are going to be packaged in a, in a collection. Mm -hmm. And also in several anthologies. A good short story, you can sell it over and over again. That's right. That's right. Now, did you, you start off um, writing books yourself and then start collaborating with uh, Jerry Purnell? I started collaborating with David Gerald. David Gerald was the first one you wrote with. Yes. And we were just hacking around. Yeah. And we had fun doing it. So when Jerry suggested collaboration, uh, I, thought it, I thought this could be fun. Uh huh. And it definitely was. Yeah, I mean, it was amazing. Moat in God's Eye was yeah. a f really fun story. You know, it was yeah, just... we put together the basics of a Moat in God's Eye one night drinking brandy and coffee. <laughs> so, um, any other like interesting experience you've had, like either working with visits to the White House under. Well, uh, there, there have been some interesting sessions with, uh, with uh, 
the writers of the future mm -hmm. because I'm one of the uh, judges of the contest. Yeah, and you've been a judge since uh, yeah. the get-go. Yeah. Any particular, um, like when you wrote with um, Dave Gerald, how did that evolve as a, was that a common thing being done then, that people were writing um, together? People in this field have always done collaborations. They don't all do it, and they don't all, and, and they shouldn't. Mm -hmm. uh, some people's view of the universe is too individual to share. Right. Uh, Robert Heinlein shouldn't have collaborated, and he didn't. Right. I, I like collaborating a lot. Uh, it's less lonely than... Uh, than writing solo flights. Yeah, and you're able to what, bounce ideas off and come up and evolve things and just yes. see different... Yes, and jar different, each other off the time if we're stuck. Yeah, because it seems like you'd be able to come up with new or a different twist to it that you wouldn't have otherwise thought just yourself or waiting yeah. for your writing group to say, what about this? Yeah. Um, David still talks about it, and so do I. The, uh, the afternoon, I was lying on a couch... Just listening to the typewriter go, we were back in the that's back in the days of typewriters. Sure, typewriter going, and David leaps to his feet and says, "I've started a riot. You stop it." <laughs> and I got up and read through what he'd done, and then I said, "Why do I want to stop it?" And I held the riot. So you held. He started it, and you held it. Yeah. What book was that? That was uh, the Flying Sorcerers. Wow. Did you have any similar type moments when you uh, wrote with Jerry? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Uh, one night, one evening, he calls me. He says, I'm, uh, I've reached a point where, uh, where people need to realize just how horrible things are outside the stronghold after the, after the comet struck. But uh, they've all gotten used to it. I'm working with uh, I'm working with this group we we set up. Uh, I said uh, he he said what what what's going on what's going on how how do I show how awful this is the drowned cars the drowned drivers call me if you get a, get a notion. Uh -huh. I called him at two at two a.m. and said I've got it. <laughs> it they, they won't notice bodies around them. They're going to notice a dead kangaroo. Yeah. So it totally... And, and of course, the, uh, the astronauts haven't got used to dead bodies everywhere. Right. And one, I've got one of the astronauts with them. So uh, that, that worked out to one of our better scenes. Oh, that's good. What story was that? What book was that? That was Lucifer's Hammer. What's probably been your, what's been your favorite uh, collaboration of all the ones that you've done? Uh, my favorite collaborations were all with Jerry. Uh-huh. Uh, no offense to my other collaborators. That's I've had fine. fun it's, with them. You got to have, yeah. if you're going to do a bunch, uh, some of them are your favorite. And, and, and it depends on who I'm talking to, really. Yeah. You're a science fiction fan, so I can, I can tell you uh, Emoting God's Eyes is uh, my favorite. But I might tell a, mon uh, a normal citizen uh, it's Lucifer's hammer. And I might tell uh, a, a, an athlete uh, Achilles' choice with Stephen Barnes 
or Saturn's race, again with Stephen Barnes. Um, if, you, if you're looking for something to, to save civilization, that's Lucifer's hammer. Yeah. Uh, if you're looking for, for the my favorite aliens, uh, emoting God's eye is, uh, is one of those. If you're a real science fiction fan, mm -hmm. footfall. If you're not quite a science fiction fan and are willing to mind stretching the, stretching the facts a little, because uh, the fifth are, are not alien enough to satisfy a, a, a biologist. Oh, wow. But it's good enough for someone who's a novice that's just yeah. willing to, to dab, touch their toe in it. In if you want something alien, you don't really start with an elephant and shrink him down to dwarf size and give him two trunks. Right. Um, that, that's a, a bit of cheating. Yeah. So then on, um, does location, has that helped you on writing stories or is it just like you just, is it just your mind taking off in different areas? There are certain things that, that are better triggers for you to be able to come up with these different ideas? I uh, never actually read Habitable Planets for Man by Doe. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, that was recommended by Poole Anderson, but I got the gist of the idea of what's going on in, in that book and similar ones. Right. Uh, you need a planet that's, uh, that, that's, that isn't completely covered by water, only you can do that. Uh -huh. uh, it, it's even likely. Uh, I, I tried to make exceptions to the rules for, do for Dole's Habitable Planets for Man. Uh, Jinx, for instance, a big moon surrounding a much bigger gas giant. Uh, Jinx has been forced outward from its original situation close, close to the uh, gas giant mm -hmm. binary, uh, even as the Earth has been forced, sorry, even as the moon has been forced outward from the Earth. Right. by tidal effects. Um, Jinx kept its shape, its prolate spheroid shape. I, I believe I was the first science fiction writer to uh, write of a prolate spheroid world. Uh, that, moving it outward so the tides aren't so strong leaves the uh, poles in vacuum and the equator in too much atmosphere with a ring-shaped ocean and habitable, zone, habitable bands north and south in the, equator, in the, uh, in the equator equatorial, being, sorry, equatorial not a, is, is wrong not word, in the, uh, okay, what is the right word for, for where we are? Habitable. <laughs> yeah, I've forgotten too. Anyway. Um, the temperate? That, that was what I was doing with these planets of known oh. space, uh, making exceptions to Dole's Habitable Planets for Man. One is a canyon that has been gouged by a super weapon. Well, those are, uh, those are fun concepts, though. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and one is, is uh, too windy to live on the surface and light gravity, so you get very tall people, tall, spindly people. That's Beowulf Schaefer, starting with the third story. I didn't even describe him for the first two stories. Did you have him conceived when he started? Or is that something that, that, that evolved? 
That evolved. Okay. That evolved long before I knew I was going to be a writer. It, uh, I wrote a st I wrote Neutron Star without uh, knowing the Neutron Star was what suited my purpose. It's just a heavy, heavy body, and and close orbit. And the guy who was a professional uh, uh, test pilot of sorts, as opposed to Beowulf Schaefer, who's forced into it. Right. So, have you had any um, issues with people challenging your science or saying that can't be true? Or is that has anybody tried to make a, a scene about that? Issues, no. But they do. They do that. Mm -hmm. It's just it doesn't bother me. Yeah. I mean, it's just I'm following the scientists. Uh, if they make mistakes, I'm stuck. I got to write something else. <laughs> Known space is kind of obsolete at this point in 19, in sorry, in 2019. Uh, the uh, galactic core, uh, the way I wrote it, doesn't even have the uh, uh, Sagittarius A1, A star. Uh, the, the big black hole. Mm -hmm. So that was, because that was the premise of, the, of your ring world was the, the black hole? Premise of the of pre premise behind a lot of known space is the galaxy is exploding in a in a rash of supernovas, and it's a shock wave moving outward. Be mm -hmm. here in a few, well, in in nearly twenty thousand years. So, that's kind of hard to defend now. We know a lot more about the galactic core. Right. So we can't really say that, but so we don't necessarily have to start. Shuttering up our windows yet? No. <laughs> okay, good. But the puppeteers do because they're cowards. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, any other like, um, like, what do you have in, in the works now for your next writings? Um, Steve Barnes and I are writing a non-science fiction story. Oh, really? With, What's that? With some science fiction in it. Okay. Uh, an older writer has died. A younger writer uh, bids at auction for his computer and finds messages to him on the computer to teach him how to write. Oh, that's a pretty fascinating story. So it's, yeah. So it's, you got science fiction there, but is it more than, it goes into fantasy? Is that the, well, the, the bent the on Well, the science fiction in this story is the story, is, is the, the, the several stories that our younger writer is writing. Good, so it's just, this, it's like a day in the life of this writer and all of a sudden he's yeah. writing this science fiction story. Yeah. So it's, are, these, are these novels or are these like novellas or short stories in sequence or? They're given, given in the story as novels, but right. we only wrote a short story size. Got it. And you'll be doing a series in of them? In fact, I need, to, I, still, I need, or Stephen needs, to write the second <laughs> novel. To write. I need, no, Stephen needs to. Hmm? <laughs> it's funny how you said, I need to. No, Stephen needs to. Write I need the, or Stephen needs. Yeah. Uh -huh. so it, that, it used to be Stephen was, was, was in the student position. Right. He's much older than that and much better trained than that now. For sure. For sure. Do you envision working with any other uh, young writers or even with some of the the writers from Writers of the Future that are 
that you've seen t- that you've... I turned down a guy just out of laziness. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I'm, I maybe should have looked into it better. But right, I, one of the rules of, of collaboration is you don't write it with, with a novice. Right. And you don't write with anyone else if you're a novice. Uh, I've broken that rule, uh-huh. but uh, I normally won't. Right. I'm just curious on that because uh, obviously you've you got an amazing legacy that you've already got there and however many more books you've got ahead of you, which we can all look forward to. So it's just being able to, instead of finding in, in that typewriter that someone else finds that these messages in there that they can actually experience that with you. That there are a couple of books just about to hit print. Oh, good. In, in terms of uh, several months. Yeah. Uh, one is uh, God's Starborn and Godsons. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the last, well, a novel by me and Stephen and Jerry Purnell. Uh, Jerry died uh, d- near the end, and Stephen and I finished it. Oh, okay. So that's one, and there's a third of the uh, the Gregory Benford collaboration. Oh, okay. Uh, called Glorious, and that's about it for ready to publish. Yeah. Uh, and, and 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 you have the, more ideas that are like yeah. you've got like bubbling. Yeah, I'd like to write another uh, Gilly Arm story. And I'm, I think I'll be doing it with Stephen Barnes. Oh, good. But first, there's, there's this, uh, this, this novel called Collaborator that we've got to finish. Uh, so you got plenty of uh, future works for, for your fans to be able to read. Yeah, if, if plenty is four, sure. Okay. Well, I thought that this one, these, these, one, these short stories you're doing with this, um, reading the off the typewriter of the, the dead writer and getting the messages to him. Isn't that, is that going to set it up as a series or potentially? No, I don't think so. Okay. Of course, I've never thought so. Okay. <laughs> uh, I don't write to, to do a sequel. I try to give the reader everything I've got. And then having finished a novel, I often go on thinking uh-huh. and uh, ideas pop up and, uh, and eventually there's a sequel. That's good. I take too long at that. Yeah. I, I noticed that because David Gerald definitely takes too long at that. Right. And it, it's kind of frustrating, the stories that aren't appearing until you've forgotten all the previous stories. Right. So then on, um, with respect to like the theme of this podcast, To the Stars, um, what do you see as... Or do you see like a relationship between science fiction and science realized? Uh, the relationship, from my viewpoint, is I follow the scientists around. If I'm Gregory Benford, uh, I'm, I'm one of the scientists. I'm following right. uh, wherever my mind leads me. Right. Uh, but for, for just a writer, uh, we don't lead the scientists. We do lead the students. Uh-huh. Uh, various people are lured into the sciences by, by stories I've written. So you've, 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's the idea of like getting people wanting to find out how can I do this or whether ring world itself can be made, but the various, some different scientific aspects of extending life and your, some of the different concepts that you've put forth in your various books. If that's a, uh, if you see it as it is inspiring future people um, to. Oh, I hope I've inspired uh, futures that will, come, will actually come about. Yeah. Because I usually start with a, a utopia and then in, introduce a snake. But do you see, that actually brings up a good point, do you see the future ultimately being a good ending or a bad ending? I'm good ending, or rather no endings. But not bad ending, you're not saying, yeah. it's not, it doesn't end with. Have, have you noticed that stories about space travel often start uh, start plausibly and and end up uh, expanding into uh, in, into fantasy yeah yeah it's because there's no easy way to end the space program the universe is too big right uh, I'm thinking of 2001 a space odyssey in particular yeah but there were there have been some Mars stories and uh, and and they always wind up uh, esoteric at the end. Yeah. Well, it's evolving now, that's for sure, because now that the envelope continues getting pushed, you've got new real plausible things as the, as the explorer on, on Mars digs up and, re and do stuff. I know now they're looking at, there are the basic fundamentals there that life could be existing mm -hmm. there or that they can go there and, and set up um, hydroponics to, to grow stuff because of this of the soil there and to create some type of atmosphere on um, on Mars and China just on their recent mission they just had um, they put three plants there to on the Mars and I mean excuse me on the moon and I just saw a report I guess today or yesterday that the cotton is taking hold and it's, it's growing there on the moon mm. with what they're doing so what was envisioned back in the 30s and 40s, you know, now Sorry. it sets it for new, okay, now new possibilities and new plausibilities. Cotton on the moon. Exactly. Uh, I'm a writer, of course, I think, reintroduction of slavery. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it sets up a whole new thing of what to do, what could, new outcomes with, with mm -hmm. new data in the, um, in the bullpen to work with. So, um, what do you see as the future of uh, science fiction? Expands in all directions. Uh, the future of science fiction has always been expanding in all directions. Uh, there have been some fads. Yeah. I get complaints from Gregory Benford, who does more reading than I do still. Uh, the science fiction isn't as, uh, isn't as readable as it used to be. And that's partly because they're, get, they're getting ambitious. Mm -hmm. The remaining science fiction writers, the ones who haven't been lured into fantasy because it's easier, uh, they, uh, they, they, they try to expand as far as they can. Mm -hmm. uh, it used to be you'd take one idea and run with it. Uh, I think uh, Byrne and Wells did that. 
Sure, they did it quite well. Yeah, but, well, I've done it myself. Right. But, like, you see, some of these 800,000-word novels now, the ones that go on, yeah. you know, that's um, where it does go, science fiction just moves into fantasy, and there's, and there's a, a combination of the genres, you mm -hmm. know, where it was at least back in the, in the golden age, in 30s and 40s, and even in the 50s, 60s, fantasy was fantasy, and science fiction was science fiction, and science fiction was a very definite <laughs> born out of science and <laughs> fantasy. No. No? No. No, the science fiction of the 60s and 50s and 40s uh, verged into fantasy um, because there, there wasn't enough science to, to hold a story. Uh, you generally could not take a, uh, a decent idea and run with it and come to an ending. So give me an example of that. Well, that... passing light travel is, is a new invention in, the, in these terms uh, because they didn't know there was a light speed barrier, the writers. So you're, you're saying that that's fantasy then, the faster than light? Is that what you're... In, in the 50s or 40s, uh -huh. uh, the writers had trouble catching up with, with Einstein. And then you'd get a story like L. Ron Hubbard uh, using the light speed uh, contraction uh, to contract a man's life. Yeah, I mean, that was the, th that was the, uh, the that, To the Stars. That which... was science fiction. Yeah. But uh, a, a lot of the, the writers didn't, uh, didn't do that, couldn't do that. Right. Okay. Now I'm tracking with that now. So that type of stuff. What did you think of, like, Bob Heinlein's? What did I... What did you think of his science fiction? Did you think of science fiction? I think he stuck... To the, to the facts as, as much as he could, and then bent them if he needed a story. Exactly, which is... Uh, the, the twin paradox, for instance. Uh, the twin paradox is, is real enough. Uh, the ships he used uh, couldn't, have, couldn't have accelerated as much as he wanted them to. Right. So that's magic. Yeah, okay. Now, now I can see your, the, the yeah. definitions we're look, working in here. That, I'm, I'm tracking with that now. Yes. It's interesting, when uh, we released the To the Stars book, you mentioned that, the one that Aaron Hubbard wrote, we re-released it about 10, 15 years ago, and um, it got some rave reviews saying that the science holds up now as well as it did when it was written like 50 years ago. Um, and it was, uh, it's interesting that whole time dilation theory, the Lorentz Fitzgerald equation, that hasn't been... yeah. Yeah, the, the, every time we look, Einstein was right. Yeah. You know, and for those that, like, really hold to the prospect that science fiction might prove out correct at some point, somebody's going to, like like E. E. Doc Smith did with his uh, Skylark series, where somebody's going to make this rogue discovery, and all of a sudden you got faster-than-light travel from experiments yeah. you're doing in their garage. Yes, uh, nobody writes those anymore except John Varley. Really? Yeah, who did. Yeah. Yeah, so you can always hope that somebody's going to make one of those rogue discoveries and mm, something sure. happens. Um, we keep getting discoveries even though they are much harder than they used to be. Mm -hmm. uh, 
they're much harder, but we got more people working on them. For sure. Um, curing of cancer, for instance. Right. We keep making progress. And hopefully someday yeah, that, that comes to pass. Yeah. I was speaking with somebody who well, was... Uh, it'll come to pass in increments. Yes. Cure, the, cure this form of cancer. Cure that form of cancer. Yeah. I was speaking with someone um, who was talking about the... Um, um, just the, the whole subject of regenerative medicine. Mm -hmm. You know, stem cell is, is a piece of that and how it's being used for astronauts because there's a problem there in space of zero gravity and no um, what happens to the body. And so yeah. that's something that's needed. But that, the effect of that on people on Earth, you know, living here, just what it does to regenerate and start getting to be 150 years, two years old, like um, Hubbard's old doc Methuselah, you know, who, yeah. who originally graduated Johns Hopkins, and now 900 years later, he's still using his regenerative medicine to keep going. So science, you know, is something that hopefully science fiction can, like, come true. It'd be very nice someday to see some of these things happen, like you're saying. Yeah. So, so um, We can be inspiring. Exactly. So speaking of being inspiring, with um, someone who's, there might be somebody out there who's not familiar with Larry Niven. So in the case that they're not, what would be your recommendation of... Uh, of a starter book or two that uh, they should read to, to learn about your writings? Again, uh, it depends on who you are, really. Okay, so let's talk uh, about the different types of person. One more time so we can but, just... But Ringworld uh, was being sold to fifth graders uh, when I met a, a certain teacher. Half, the, half her class had, been, had read Ringworld. That's awesome. It, what it's a, a wonderful to intellectual an toy yeah. is what the Ringworld is. Yeah. And uh, and kids, at least, will believe the uh, the, the cheats I've wor worked in, the yeah. the the, uh, the unreasonable uh, uh, unreasonably uh, strong materials, the uh, fast and the light travel. Sure. Uh, the, uh, they'll believe it for the sake of a story. Right. After all, they were raised with fairy tales. <laughs> yep. The ones who can read. Exactly. And if they're just stuck on TV yeah. and movies. So it, got, yeah. it's Ringworld for almost everybody. Right. Uh, but f uh, if you don't like that far out stuff, uh, get Lucifer's Hammer. And if you're interested in life forms other than human, uh, get Footfall. And if, you, uh, if, you're, if you're a Christian, you may find some entertainment in our, our in the, the, the sequel Jerry Pornell and I wrote to Inferno, to Dante's Inferno. We called it Inferno. Wow. Excellent. So um, this has been great. I really appreciate having this time to, to speak with you, Larry. And to uh, I know a lot of people will be very interested in learning some of the uh, backstory to your, to your novels what you got coming out, and uh, for those people that don't, don't know who you are, how to get started, because your name definitely is uh, very well known out there. And thank you for listening. In his introduction to Battlefield Earth, Elwin Hubbard wrote that science fiction, particularly in its golden age, had a mission, beating the drum to get man to the stars. The To the Stars podcast has been created to recognize and honor those who have dedicated themselves to this objective, and that very much includes Larry Niven. 
Subscribe to the To The Stars podcast wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you very much.